So good morning, Wellspring family. It is good to be with you um, in person and online. Um, we've been looking at the book of Joseph, a book of Joseph, story. it feels like a book. It's like Genesis 37 through 50. It's like a huge chunk of Genesis, but it's still the book of Genesis. <laughs> we've been looking at the story, the story of Joseph. And today we're going to be looking, because um, we actually started at the end of his story. We started at the end of his story last week with Pastor Cheryl, and she gave us some perspective for his story that we take our entire sermon series in this month of um, the season of Lent. Wow, I don't get time. I don't have times today. Times are books. They're just gone. <laughs> Did not have coffee. Maybe that's it. <laughs> in the season of Lent, it's 40 days. It's not quite a month. Um, we're going through the story of Joseph. God meant it for good. So we started at the end. But at the end of Joseph's life, having been through all these like, trials and tribulations and all this difficulty and devastation, he gets to the end of his story and he says something really remarkable. That, you know, you, you meant all this for evil, uh, but, but God meant all these things that you chose that came my way. Uh, God meant it for good. And so we kind of got some perspective um, from Joseph last week, but today we're going to be going to the beginning of his story, and it's a story of a dream. I read this quote this week from the the freedom fighter, the complex woman, the follower of Jesus, Harriet Tubman, and she said this, every great dream begins with a dreamer. And we know that the dreams of humans can be powerful. They can help shape our world for better or worse ways, depending on the character of the dreamer. And how much more powerful the dreams of God, which are tied to the promises of God for individuals and for the world God made. I don't think my clicker is working yet. Does someone want to go see if we can get that turned on? It says that it's on here, but so friends, I like to press show slides sometimes, but I can't see it. Oh, maybe it's the clicker's working. I just can't see it. Wow, sometimes things work in life, we don't see it. This is one of those days. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Genesis about a dream. And the way this story starts, there's an abrupt shift in the book of Genesis. Because up until then, God has done all of this work very loudly, very much in the open. God working for good, God speaking into the, the God's holy darkness and creating light and creating the world and calling it good and walking and talking with humans and saving humanity through a flood for all who are go on the ark. God is out there talking with people, walking around the place. And um, whether it's talking with, with Abram and Sarah or Enoch, I mean, there's a lot of like very clear and like obvious workings of God in the book of Genesis. And then suddenly, right, we have Hagar who like sees God and God sees her, like these really powerful moments. And then something shifts when we get to the story of Joseph. And what shifts is that suddenly we don't see God so as such an um, obvious, um, loud, splashy actor. Suddenly uh, we see God is acting sort of behind the scenes in a hidden way. And I really like looking at stories like this because I don't know about your story, but in mine, I don't always see God like right in a very like uh, obvious and loud and an upfront way. But sometimes it's within God's holy darkness from within the shadows where dreams come from that we actually sense God with us, God's movement with us. So our story of Joseph 
takes place within a shift um, from God acting in more visible ways to acting in more invisible, hidden ways. And there's something I find comforting about that. So I invite you to, to look with me in the story of Genesis, um, Genesis 37. I'm going to be reading from verses 2 onwards. And I think my screen's working, which means, ah, it's working. Thanks for that thumbs up, Karen. Okay. So I'm going to read it. You read it all together with me. And it should be in your notes as well. Starting verse 2, this is the story of the family of Jacob. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Now, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. In the Philippines, we have a word for that. It means bunso, like beloved youngest son, the bunso of the family. It's not always a son, but usually a son. So jo- Joseph's sort of like the bunso. So one day, Jacob, picking up our text, he had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundles stood up, and your bundles all gathered around me and bowed low before me. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king to you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in the book of Genesis, sometimes timelines get a little fuzzy. And as I was reading through some, um, some old Hebrew commentary on this, uh, I, I saw some, some schools of thought emerge that say that actually the dream that Joseph had was when he was very young. It was when his mother was still alive. So he had these dreams when he was a little kid, when his mother was still alive before his brother Benjamin is born, right? He's like the youngest of the family at this point in time, one of the youngest of his family. Um, he tells his dreams when he's still young, which honestly makes me feel a little more empathetic towards him than if he were the 17-year-old out in the fields also, you know, tattling on his family and also telling uh, them about his dreams. So if you want, we can interpret this different ways because we are never told the entire story in scripture, right? We just have a, a part of it. But I invite you with me, you know, maybe with our Jewish brothers and sisters, we can read this as he's a young child having these dreams, not sure what to do, talking to his family, talking to his parents. There's a rift and a rift continues. Now, all this dream's meaning, although it might be unclear to us, actually, to Joseph's family, it was pretty clear. They understood at least part of it. And to them, this dream disrupted their family. It disrupted the normal ordering of the family back in these ancient times in the ancient Near East. It was a very patriarchal culture, so the father, um, who had the most power in the family, uh, he would sort of run the show, and then from then on, it would, the power in the family would run through the sons uh, to the firstborn, who would have the right of succession. Um, I think it's called primogeniture or something, I'm probably not saying that word right, but it means that like, you would get property, you'd get like, the blessing, those things would come to you, and then on down through the different um, male people in the family, and it's basically like this pecking order. And Joseph's dream disrupts the normal like, hierarchy of things. It disrupts the pecking order. It disrupts sort of their business as usual in their family. His dream unsettles the status quo. 
In the first dream, Joseph has this unexpected economic power. It's symbolized by these bundles of grain that bow down to him. And in that day, whoever controlled the food also controlled uh, political power. They had political power. Maybe not so different nowadays. I don't know. And his brothers point this out. They're like, so you're going to be our king? Right? When, when, they, when they see this dream, when they see this dream, they don't be like, they're not like, oh, I have to give you my grain. They understand this dream to mean that there's going to be some kind of power or authority that he's going to have. You're going to be our king, they said. They didn't like this. And in the second dream, this time the family constellation bestows unusual honor. They bow down to him almost as if his parents, his mom and dad, his older siblings, almost like they were in his debt. The family, they're caught off balance by these dreams of Joseph. The dream looms over the whole family, disturbing the peace. You might think it might be easier for their family if they didn't have these dreams to disturb and disrupt. But here's the thing. These dreams came, this dream came, as many of them do, from God. What Joseph and his family could not know, what's hidden from view in this chapter, what's beyond their ability to know is that the world as they knew it was going to change dramatically and within just a few years of their lifetime. An ecological disaster such as the world had never known was headed that way in a few short years. And it wasn't just a small disaster, but this was a huge disaster that was headed their way. We find out later it was not just one year of famine, which is it's a problem. Because in those days, this is like what, 2000 to 1600 BC, like ancient Near East, lots of hunters, gatherers. You're really dependent on these small crops of grain that farmers are bringing out locally from small farms and then from catching whatever food you can catch. But the thing is, if there's no harvest, then there's no grain to get. And then eventually the animals die or they migrate. So you are left with very little food. You're not next to the sea. You can't go out in a boat and catch fish. You are stuck. You either have to leave or die. And so you can maybe live through maybe one year of famine, maybe two years if you have like really great connections. But what was coming up was not one or two or three or four or five or six years of famine, but seven years of famine. That's a civilization killer right there. That would wipe entire peoples off the map. Seven years of famine. Seven scorched years. No one in this day or age could survive something like this. And it was going to impact such a large amount of area that you couldn't even travel outside of it. Because you'd die first. So basically, into this context of doomsday, this would be a really great movie. In this context of doomsday comes God's dream. God's dream to save. Number one in your notes, in the face of death, God has a dream. In the face of this impending disaster, in the face of catastrophe and sure death, God has a dream, gave it to Joseph. Now, this dream that God has is a dream born out of God's loving faithfulness to creation, right? It's a dream began when God, um, the spirit of God hovered over the waters like a, like a nesting bird. God called it good and called all, all this goodness out of it. It was a dream began when God walked and talked with the first humans in the garden. It was a dream begun with harmony and goodness and justice and shalom. 
It was a dream that was kept alive because in every single generation of people that um, we hear about in the book of Exodus, in every single generation, this dream is threatened because people have violent actions, selfish, jealous actions, and um, the dream is threatened. This dream that God has to save. Right? Sin is brought into the world. God still has a dream. It's going to send someone who can crush that serpent's head. Right? There's all these threads of hope, but at each generation, there's also the threat that the, the dream will die. God keeps it alive through every generation, reaching out to Abraham, to Sarah, letting them know, making them a sacred promise. So the dream is a promise too, making them a sacred promise to bless them, their family, which they don't have yet, and then through their family, which they don't have yet, all the peoples of the earth. So God keeps this dream alive. And here we get to the story of Joseph of impending catastrophe that's about to wipe all of Abraham and Sarah's descendants off the map. The thread of blessing looks like it's about to be cut. That, that, little, that little light of hope looks like it's about to be snuffed out. The dream looks like it's going to fade away. And yet God finds a human to carry the dream on and entrusts it to this little boy, Joseph. Now, in order to survive something of this catastrophe, Joseph needed to be brought into proximity to power. Maybe uh, an empire or city where they had the ability to harvest huge amounts of food and, and huge storehouses to be able to store it. Right? At some point in time, Joseph needed to go to Egypt, which was the, the most powerful empire of its day. It's the nearest empire of its day. So in response to Joseph's dream, right, which was from God, it's an expression of God's promise, God's hopes in the world, God's purposes to save. Um, Joseph's brothers and parents could have said, you know, Joseph, sometimes you can be a little annoying, but you have great vision. You have great vision, Joseph. You have like a lot of leadership qualities. You know what? How about we send you on an internship to Egypt? <laughs> we got some friends there, maybe some distant, distant relatives. You can go with one of the caravans that's always going by our house. Maybe you can take some of the stuff that we have to sell or maybe start a little small business. Maybe if you're lucky enough, you might be able to like, you know, get a job along some of the servants in Pharaoh's court. Come on, Joseph. Also, you're getting a little annoying here. So go spread your wings and fly right? That's how the story could have been written. There's so many ways this story could have gone for Joseph to wind up in Egypt where he needed to be. So is that what his family does? Do they recognize these dreams and say, you know, these are disruptive and, you know, let's, let's roll with it. Is that what usually happens when people have dreams that disrupt the status quo? Are we like, yes, let's tell me more. <laughs> Not usually, sadly. So let's pick up the story. What does Joseph's family do? Genesis 37, 12 through 13. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. So he goes there, they're not there. He goes on a little journey, he winds up finding them. And here we pick up in verse 18. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal is eating him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Do you notice here the expression of their anger and hatred? Yes, they want to kill Joseph, but why? They want to get rid of the dream. The dream is eating at them. 
It's meant to be a blessing, right? This dream is sent by God. It's God's dream. It's meant to keep people alive, keep the thread of God's promise of salvation going in the world. But right now, it's, it feels like a curse because it conflicts so much with the vision they have for their family. It, it pours right into their own wounds that they have from their father who favors Joseph, has favored him since the very beginning. They want to kill the dream by killing the dreamer. And that's been done many times. This text here, we'll see what become of his dreams, is actually on Martin Luther King Jr.'s tombstone. Come, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Then let's see what becomes of his dream. They thought that they could kill the dream by killing the dreamer. It's not the first time that has happened. Actually, we see in just a few weeks, Jesus um, being condemned to die, being betrayed by a friend, being sold for a few pieces of silver. We see Jesus facing the authorities of his day, being treated like less, worse than a slave, being beaten, being condemned to die. They thought if they could kill the dream by killing the dreamer. This brings us to number two in our notes. The dream is at work, even when the outcome is less than clear. Somehow, somehow the dream is at work, even when the outcome is less than clear, even when the dreamer is killed, even when those who, who want to keep things exactly the way they are, even when the brothers pursue in hatred, even when those wounds are not resolved, somehow the dream is at work. We see this all the time in the world, and we see it right now in Joseph's story. We're going to pick it up again. This is verse 21 onwards. When Reuben, he's uh, one of the older brothers, when he heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. That would make him look good too. Oh, dad, like he got in a big scrape, but here he is, your favorite son whom I rescued. That would look great, right? So that's what he's hoping to do. And then... um, so when Joseph arrived, they went ahead with their plan. Brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he's wearing. They grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, I just, that part kills me. Like, really, you're going to go eat dinner now? <sighs> just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming by from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, now this is another older brother, what will you gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelites. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when some Midianite traders came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. The traders took him to Egypt. There's a lot of things in that passage. There's a lot of pain that's not directly addressed. There is evil in this, the conspiring together, the hatred that led to it, the favoritism that fed into it, the resistance of God's dream. One thing I notice as I read that text is that there's like a lot of different people groups mentioned. There's Ishmaelites, then there's Midianites. Like what's that about? You know, both of them are distant relatives of Joseph and his brothers through their grandpa, their great-grandpa, Abraham. So this is showing us all this, all this complicity, not just the brothers, but the extended family. They're all in it, whether they know it or not. They don't even realize they're working against God's dream, but they are. And although, although Joseph hasn't been killed yet, 
the threats to mental and spiritual and physical health abound. Because for slaves in ancient and modern times, life is unjust, often short, and brutal. The chapter ends with the dream still at work through Joseph staying alive, but just barely. The outcome is really unclear. Now, I've been talking a lot about Joseph, but I want to talk just for a minute about us. Many of us might know Joseph's story, maybe from Sunday school, if we ever went to Sunday school as a kid, or if we ever did like a Bible study on Joseph, or maybe watched Joseph the musical. I don't know. Um, Maybe you heard about Joseph's story for the first time last week as Pastor Cheryl was talking about his story from the end on. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing it. I think most of us have heard at least some of Joseph's story. In the end, the dream is somehow kept alive. As Pastor Cheryl saved last week, uh, shared last week, lives are saved. The family continues. There's reconciliation and hope and restoration and forgiveness and repentance. Joseph has all these amazing perspectives to share and all that jazz. But let me just tell you that when Joseph was living his story, all of that was unknown. All of that was unknown. Like our candle lit here, it was an in-process story. There's this um, book that I read a couple years ago. It's called Made to Stick. It's, I think, like a business strategy book. It talks about, like, why some ideas stick with us, why some of them don't. It's a really fascinating book. And it introduced this new idea to me called um, The Curse of Knowledge. I don't know if any of you have heard of The Curse of Knowledge, but it was coined by the Stanford um, psychology graduate student, and she pulled together this simple experiment. It's a simple game where she assigned people two roles. One would tap out the melody of a favorite song, um, over a well-known song, uh, kind of like this. And the listener would have to listen and then guess the song. So out of the 120 songs tapped out, well-known songs tapped out, um, listeners only guessed three of the songs correctly. Success ratio was like 2.5%. What makes this so interesting to me and why business strategists are talking about the study is because the tappers thought there was a 50% chance the person might guess. They're like, I think I have a 50% chance you're going to totally guess a song. Or you're totally going to guess it. Are you ready? Are you ready? But in reality, it only happened one time in 40. <laughs> and you know why? It's because this is what they coined the curse of knowledge. When you tap out the melody to a song, you hear it in your mind. It is so clear. I heard the song this morning. I was listening. It's a very vintage song. Maybe not all of you know it. As the deer panted for the water, so my... It's super clear to me. I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Another one we did this morning was this one. You should know that one. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. It's Steve's birthday. (laughs) All these songs that you know, you know what you're tapping out. You're like, come on, partner, get it this time. Never do this, never do this game with your like spouse or partner because it probably will not end well statistically if they only guess it one in 40 chances. This idea that once you know something, you can't really unknow it. And it's very hard for you to put yourself in the position of someone who does not know it yet. You think it's very clear. They should know. Don't they know? This is a very easy song. (laughs) We have a really hard time sharing something we know with others when we know it because we can't remember what it was like to not know that thing. Now, friends, when we live our stories, 
We live in the ambiguity of not knowing exactly how they will tap out. When we encounter harm, injustice, pain, when family systems seem to be more of a nightmare than a blessing, when finances are more than tight, when relationships we treasure grow distance, when we have a diagnosis that changes everything, when church becomes a chore, when we lose that loved one we wish had stayed alive. When we read local and global news and it looks like the dream God had for the world or for our lives is dead, we can easily be discouraged and despair because the outcome is unsure. Friends, if you are discouraged or despairing today, that's okay. I invite you to sit in the unknowing of exactly how your story will turn out. Sit in that knowing and yes, feel the pain if you need to feel the weight of it, but also know that there's a hidden one in the shadows who waits with you, who is no stranger to discouragement or despair, and who sometimes I would say, perhaps especially often, chooses those who are familiar with despair, familiar with discouragement, those who are vulnerable, chooses those people to hold the dreams of God. God's vulnerable dreams often rest on the most vulnerable people. Unless you become like a little child, Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's vulnerability. The story today of Joseph, he's the one thrown into the cistern, sold for a few pieces of silver, sent off with the traders. He doesn't have a lot of power in this story. He has a lot of agency, but he doesn't have a lot of power in these moments. He is a very vulnerable person, yet on him rests the dreams of God. And friends, you might be vulnerable for different, different reasons. You might know some vulnerable people. Maybe you have a little bit of power. Maybe you're a little bit more like the brothers or like the dad. Who are God's dreams resting on today. This brings me into this, this thing I've been just thinking about all week. It just seems amazing to me that the entire purposes of God at this time are just resting on Joseph, right? He's, he's so vulnerable. And in his mind, in his body, in his heart, in his soul, he holds the hope. He holds God's purposes. Who best to know the power of a dream than one who is not free? Who best knows the power of life when you have come close to death? It's precisely in his vulnerability that I think creates such a wonderful human. And I wish it didn't have to be that way. I, I wish his brothers didn't play it out that way. I wish his father hadn't played it out that way. I wish they'd done something totally different, and they could have. Because God can get God's purposes done in wonderful and good and amazing ways as well as working against the tide, against all the hard things we're throwing away. God can do both. So God's dreams, they're, they're powerful. God's dream is powerful. But it's also vulnerable because it can be blocked. It can be circumvented. It can be thwarted. It can be resisted. But because God's dreams are tied to who God is, to God's love, God's character, God's dreams are among the most powerful realities in the world. This is a tension. We live in this tension. Today, I just invite us to ask the question, as we live in the tension, the tension of our own unknowns, what dream is God dreaming over us? 
What thread or threads of salvation is God still weaving in the world? Who are the vulnerable people, our brothers and sisters, who hold the dream, who carry within themselves the hopes and purposes of God for greater freedom, deliverance, justice, salvation? Who are the vulnerable people we should be listening to, even if it disrupts our family system, disturbs the status quo? Here at Wellspring over the last couple months, um, we've been listening to our brothers and sisters in Christ um, in the Native Hawaiian community who call us to advocate and ask for righteousness to be done regarding our island's threatened water supply. Because right now there's 180 million gallons of jet fuel. So if you can just imagine the Aloha Tower, like a whole bunch of Aloha Towers in the ground filled with jet fuel, which is 100 feet over our water supply for our island. that's That's the situation we're in right now. These have leaked, and they're leaking. I grew up in a part of the world where the water supply was not safe, where you couldn't just turn on the taps and drink the water, and I know how incredibly tenuous that makes life for people, especially people who have less resources, who have less money. So the first Monday of every single month we've been gathering here to pule, to pray for our water supply, to listen to some leaders and advocates who are asking for justice, asking for God's righteousness to be done. They give us updates so we know how to pray, we know who to write to, (laughs) we know what's going on, because I'm not not as attuned to that as I could be. I really value hearing them. I really value hearing them. Because friends, God has a dream to save lives. I believe that just as God had a dream to save the lives of that whole world, right, all that ecological disaster that was coming, you know, God can save us from ecological disasters. So I encourage you, be listening to our, our Native Hawaiian brothers and sisters. Be listening to those water protectors. Believe, um, le- believe and listen to those who are calling us to justice and righteousness on behalf of our water supply. That is part of God's dream to save lives. Because God cares about life now and in the world to come. As we pray for healing of the water, I just can't think, can't help thinking that this wouldn't be the first time, right? If God actually heals the water supply, if the jet fuel is drained somehow safely, if this threat is eliminated, this wouldn't be the first time God has utilized the wisdom and skillful actions of his few to save a large community from disaster. So friends, whatever dreams are being shared, whatever dreams are being shared by whatever people, are we listening Are we more likely to be like the brothers and deny the dream? Or maybe like Father Jacob, he wants to keep the peace, but privately is wondering what God is doing? Or maybe are you a dream holder? Friends, God has a dream. God's dream meets us and is at work even when the outcome is less than clear. And number three in your notes, God's dream meets us in the place of our devastation. God's dream meets us in the place of our devastation. When you read the the chapter of Genesis 37 all at once, which I encourage you to do this week, 
If you want to just go to chapter 37 and start reading through it, chapter 38 is very interesting. I think Pastor Yumiko is preaching on that next week. Uh, the story of Tamar. It's another story of like, like a, a threatened thread. Um, one of Jesus' ancestors, their life is being threatened, and this wise woman makes some very unorthodox actions to keep the family line going. It's a fascinating story. That's next week. <laughs> so if you read Genesis 37 or 38, come on, just read them both. Just read them both. They're really cool. Um, if you read Genesis 37 or 38, um, if you go to the very beginning of our passage, uh, verse 2, it invites us to read this, and I'm not sure if I have it there. I don't think I have it in the notes, so I'm just going to have to find it. Um, if you look at 37.2, it says, this is the story of Jacob and his family. This is the story of Jacob and his family, which is interesting because you think it's the story of Joseph, right? Joseph's talked about left, right, all the time. This is the story of Jacob. Now, what's interesting is that Jacob... You know, he's the one who had his name changed to Israel. It's like his children that become like these pillars in this community. And then the children of Israel, like they go on to be like, you know, also called the people of God because it's through them that God is going to bless all the world. And then Jesus comes and he's the fulfillment of all these hopes and dreams to, to bless the world through Abraham's children. And then somehow, you know, we get further along in the New Testament and we're told that you and I are grafted into this family. We're a part of it. So it's interesting when I hear this is the story of Jacob and his children, I think, wow, wow, this is, we're meant to read this corporately. This doesn't say the story of Joseph. This is the story of our family. That's how this begins, which is why I'm inviting us to think ethically about this together, right? What are the dreams being spoken? What role are we playing? Because this is our story. That's how the chapter begins. The chapter ends in a really hard place, personally and corporately, because it ends with a scene of uncomforted grief. That one's hard for me because I live a lot of my life in the field of uncomforted grief. The story ends with a scene of devastation. We're getting ready to close in our message and I thought, wow, like, it's gonna be so heavy because we end with this really sad picture. And I thought, you know, it is what it is. It's in the text. It is a scene of devastation, right? The chapter zooms in on Jacob. He's this picture of a bereaved father. Because right after, after Joseph's brothers sell their brother to some merchants, they dip his cloak of many colors in a goat's blood, and then they bring it to him as if like a wild animal killed their, son, killed their brother. There's this like really painful reversal there because do you remember Jacob? He had actually come before his father when his father was very old, used some goat-like skin to trick him. Well, now he is the father. His sons have brought, you know, this cloak with goat blood on it. And now he is the one being tricked by his sons. It's this painful, painful reversal of something he did to someone else that's now coming back to him. And he believes that Joseph is dead. He tears his clothes. He mourns loudly and long. All the rest of his children, all his remaining children, his daughters, his sons, they come to him, but he refuses to be comforted. He says, I want to go down to Sheol, the place of the dead. That's where my son is. I just want to go there. He's just done. And friend, into that picture of uncomforted grief, into the scene of devastation, God's dream stands directly in response to it. God's dream reaches out and meets Jacob exactly in that devastation. 
Because God's dream always reaches out to each one of us precisely in those areas where it feels like the dream has died, where there's no goodness left, where there's only sadness and despair, right into those places in our lives, in our world. This is actually where God's dream meets us because God's dream is to save. If we didn't need saving, where would the dream be? God's dream is to rescue because we need rescuing. God's dream is to restore because we have been devastated. Not just us individually, but us corporately as a human family. And so in all of our places of devastation with this very, very sad picture of Jacob we see here, we also see the dream of God reaching out to him. We see it reaching out to him because we know the end of the story. Remember the curse of knowledge? We know that one day they are going to run to each other's arms. They are going to weep for a long time. They're going to spend another 17 years together, another 17 years to mirror those painful 17 years. There's going to be 17 years of restoration. The whole world is going to be saved. They are not going to starve. There's going to be love and sharing and openness and respect and deep gratefulness. We know this. And yet, do we know it for ourselves? We can't because we haven't lived it yet. This is why I think for me personally, this is a sad book of the Bible. I know the end for Joseph. I know the end for Jacob. And yet I sit there in the seat of sorrow, in my own uncomforted grief. I say, how long, Lord? How long? And as I sit in the seat of sorrow, and it's like this last week, actually I feel like I've done more crying than I've done in a long time. Like poor Pastor Cheryl, Pastor Dan, they're like, she is a hot mess. <laughs> they haven't said it directly. <laughs> Or indirectly, they're really nice. But my own internal dialogue is she's a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's like a video upstairs because we have a video to try to make sure that our cakey are safe. It's just like one of the things that we do. And um, <laughs> I was like purposely like, I'm going to close the door because I'm going to ugly cry now. And I do not want that to be on the video. <laughs> close that damn door. Because <laughs> this door is open. <laughs> And as I sat and I cried and I wept and I ugly cried, I also thought of the end of the story that I don't live in yet, right? This curse of knowledge, but it's also in some ways a blessing of knowledge. I want it to be a blessing for me. I want to be able to read the text and, and know that something good is coming for the people. And then in some way in my life have hope and faith that something good will come for me, for our community, for all of us together, for our island, for our country, for our world. And this is a, this is a vulnerable place to be in because hope is a vulnerable thing. Hope is a vulnerable thing. Dreams are vulnerable things. And yet they are also among the most powerful realities of God. I sit in that tension this week. If today you feel a little bit like Jacob, maybe you feel like you're just kind of caught in something, this uncomforted, um, unconsolable, like just a place of unrequited need. Maybe it's grief, maybe it's anger, maybe it's cynicism, maybe it's longing. Know that you are in a space tailor-made for God to meet you. Know that the dreams of God are still harbored in the bodies of vulnerable people. Know that we still are in the presence of a God 
who is no stranger to desolation and devastation, and who desires that all will have life, life everlasting. Even as I sit in sorrow, I also sit in celebration, knowing that God's dreams to save our world have not died, that God still has power to free, heal, unite, bring home, and raise the dead. I have hoped that one day I can sing in the words of the great hymn, through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Disgrace brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. I want to close with the words of another song from the prophet Isaiah, who says this, the end of the story, the ending, comfort, Comfort my people, says the Lord. As a mother comforts her children, so I will comfort you. You will be comforted. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let them declare what is to come and what will be. Have I not told you from old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the face of death and devastation, you have a dream. That the dream is at work even when the outcome is less than clear. And that your dream meets us in the place of our devastation. It's precisely where there is famine that you come with a plan of plenty. It's precisely where there is grief that you come to console. Where there are rifts and where there is um, so much harm that you come to rectify, and that you plant those dreams of how to do it in us. So Lord, help us to listen to the dreamers. Help us listen to those vulnerable people who disrupt and disturb. Help us to follow you, embrace our brothers and sisters, listen to them. And help us be able to sit in the blessing of knowledge that one day we will be comforted. One day your whole world will be comforted. All who come finding life and life abundantly in you, tasting and seeing your goodness. We wait in hope, even in our sorrow today. Amen.